Hello. Hello, hello. All right. So. So. Go ahead. I guess the uh, the purpose of discussion, I guess we're going to be having here today, is going to be talking about some of the more the common criticisms that if you would go onto say a mainstream video of Ayn Rand, you would find in the comment sections. Uh, I guess some of the ones that philosophical zombie hunter wasn't able to uh, address in his in his very good video on uh, on some of those criticisms of Ayn Rand. Oh, thank you. <laughs> but yeah, I thought I thought that was a that was a very good video from you, uh, especially the one tackling, or especially the point tackling on her use of welfare. You know, a lot of people very think, common, yeah. It's very common. Basically, see it in every comment section. They're just like, "Well, she was a welfare queen," or something like that. Uh, I had that today, actually. Yeah, like some hours yeah, ago. Really? <laughs> or, or she was a she was a racist. She hated Indians. I had that too as well. Sexist. Yep. Every, all, I, I've I've less seen the. Uh, she didn't understand Kant, but I'm pretty sure that's more. Probably because most people aren't very familiar with Kant in the first place. Mm. At least, like those who are in the normal, like political mainstream, they're probably not that familiar with them. Uh, so I, I, but I bet those are pretty common as well. So, I guess one of the ones that I saw that was fairly frequent, uh, I saw at least like three or four times, was people talking about how Rand is wrong about like the concept of sacrifice. And their justification mm. for that was that, like, modern psychology proves that if you, you know, if you, like, act benevolently, that therefore uh, you're going to feel happy about it. You're going to feel, you're going to feel pleasure. So basically what they're saying is, you know, giving up things is is a sacrifice and it's not bad because I feel good about it or it's for some greater goal or something like that. Uh, so you ultimately, so it, it, um, that's not, that's not essentially wrong, but, uh, what Rand would say is you can't, if for example, let's say I, I, I give a homeless person on the street, like $5 or something. If those five dollars to me are not a sacrifice, so it's a very small amount of money, and as I'm giving the five dollars, I do feel good about it, then it's okay. But if it's five hundred dollars or twenty percent of my paycheck, and it's you know, over time it means that I'm losing money and making my life more miserable. That's where the cutoff point is is not good. I think I think that you know I would one hundred percent agree, but I think the point that they're making. Uh, is more that like you will always feel good about it or something like that. Uh, that if okay, no, the way that I would look at it is that they're saying that suppose that you're criticizing them for committing behavior that's like against their life. You know, it's basically they're 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 performing sacrifices in life, actual sacrifices, and their justification for doing so is it made me feel good. It's not a sacrifice. Because yeah, I benefit yeah, yeah. from the the pleasure, you know, and I think that's just entirely wrong on Rand's account of sacrifice of like that the the like the momentary hedonistic pleasure uh, is an actual, I guess you could say value. I are they are they saying it in a sort of uh, 
I've run into this before. It's not uh, something I re I managed to record uh, a debate, but something called psychological egoism. I don't I don't know if it's entirely psychological. It might I I'm not familiar with the term. That so much, it, it so just I couldn't, it, it's I couldn't it's uh it's not really a philosophy per se. It's just a position that says that anything you do. You do for a selfish reason. So anything that you do... Yes, that, that's what it is, I think. Yeah, the motivation behind it is to be selfish. But it's not... Um, it's not a pro It's like an axiom. It's not proven. It's like assumed. But, it's, but it, it isn't... It's like, let's say, rational egoism where you have to be... Ra it's, not, it's not a philosophy. It's just, I think that's how it is and I'm not arguing. Or, or, or sorry, or, it, or they would say, <laughs> prove that it isn't. Like this could this is, could only be this thing. <laughs> like yeah, like it's self evident yes. or something. Um but yeah, I would actually say I would say it's a lot in the line of, of that. Where these pe these people are trying to say that Rand's belief of sacrifice is wrong because everything I do I get pleasure from. Because it's all for selfish motives and that therefore, you know, you can't criticize anybody for anything selfish or anything like selfless or altruistic because they're getting selfish pleasure from it. Uh because you know it's like they're do they're all doing it for the selfish motivation. Uh, of course, it, it this idea is completely bonkers and ridiculous. And go on, then say dis that disprove it. Yeah, disprove it. I would say that the the idea is bonkers and ridiculous because so remember that Rand's uh like the standard of value of any man according to Rand. Or the standard of value of life is is life. Uh, so I guess you would say that even if you do like gain in some amount from pleasure, uh, from from an action, I would say it's more of a cost benefit analysis rather than like a an actual just like I didn't gain I didn't I guess how to describe I guess an example would be so. When I go and purchase, like, say, a burger, mm -hmm. all right, uh, it isn't a sacrifice for me to give them to have to give up money. It's a trade. Yeah, it's a trade. Yeah. I, it's, it's not a sacrifice because I gain the burger in 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 uh, in my long term values. That's beneficial for my life. Uh, according, I guess that that's the judgment that I've made. Well, actually, your long term values will probably. Your long-term health would probably disagree with you, but uh, continue. Well, let's say it's the. I'm, I'm just it's joking. The burger that's just joking. Me. <laughs> it's the burger that's the. This the best burger ever made, uh, and I get it for a dollar. But, I, so yeah, I think Ram would view it as it's less of like a. I guess you could say, giving up, or gaining anything. It's more about like what are you giving up to to get. It's about it's it is about gaining in a sense of like a cost benefit analysis. So I guess another example I would give. Suppose that uh, I have the difference between you know saving my wife's life or four random people. All right, I know that's like the lifeboat scenario, and. It's actually Suppose the, the, that the it's the lever, or, but what the the trolley? The trolley, yes, that's the one. Yeah, let's suppose we're in the trolley problem, and 
I choose to save the four people because I'm a utilitarian altruist and, oh my gosh, the good of mankind. And let's say that somebody pats me on the back afterwards and he says, oh my god, you did a good thing. And I feel slightly happy because of that. Okay. Uh, I would still consider that to be a sacrifice because that slight happiness, like, like that momentary pleasure that I've gained, I, I gained, in quotation, putting my fingers up, is... Uh, not worth the extreme pain and loss that's going to cause my life from losing losing my wife and yeah i i think that um so i actually do have an answer for it now i i i just kind of like argued my way by accident into this answer i think it does work and and i'm noticing more and more that when you deal with what Diego would call rationalist, that this is a a good tactic, and it's basically so that was a big a big preamble, but it's basically like you um you bring them down to reality, and in this context, you say long term, you include the world the world's long term. So, if you lost your wife. Okay, so if you save those other people, like maybe maybe you'll get a moment of happiness, but long term you'll be very very sad. Or maybe it's the other way around. Maybe you really hated your wife and you you're happy there. <laughs> Who knows? But uh, but it, I actually don't like trolley problems. But if if let's say you know you give some money to someone on the street, it doesn't really hurt you. It's like it makes you feel good for like a few minutes. But you know, long term you haven't lost anything and if um you know the example with uh if you have kids and you have to stay at home looking after them instead of going to the to the movies which you used to like but kids are a higher value for you so it's not a sacrifice um so yeah so if you include the world long term especially for those psychological egoists um it kind of like nullifies the point where it kind of brings it down to reality in my opinion now another Another thing, it's just funny because I had a debate on this and I have some ready-made answers for you. But uh, another thing is um, the trade versus sacrifice. If you look, there's a way of looking at it in a rationalistic mathematical way. It's very easy to explain to other people. So let me see if I can do this. Um, Let's say you have two people, A and B, and, and you trade with them. You only have two options, a trade or a sacrifice. A trade... Uh, you trade something of lower value for a higher value. Yeah, and, and at the end you, you make a profit or you gain something, whether it's spiritual or material, that doesn't matter. But uh, with a sacrifice, you trade a higher value for a lower value, meaning you lost something at the end of it. Now, if you, you take this rationalized example and you repeat it a million times, like a computer simulation, then at some point the first person who traded is very, very rich and very, very wealthy. And by all uh, by all measures, you can technically apply this to, to every person in the country. If they all follow this philosophy, then they would all be richer. And if they all follow the philosophy of sacrifice, of altruism, they would all be poorer. And then you can point to like moments in history where such a culture or such a philosophy made these situations happen. But... But I, I think it's just a very easy way to explain to to rationalists, and they typically agree. 
Oh yeah, I, I, I think it's a good. I think it ultimately comes down to like a misunderstanding of Rand's view of sacrifice, values, gaining, uh, of just not really understanding the whole, you know, integrated element of it, of understanding that this all includes long term benefits. Uh, that this to to you know what I mean. To be fair, they're trying to not understand. They're trying hard to. The, yeah, there's evasion. Yeah, because. You know, it's the they're tribalistic in this sense, and if you shake this pillar of the philosophy, then every other things will fall down. So they're trying on purpose. So I do. Uh, I would like to. I think we've answered that pretty pretty well. Uh, I, I I found another one. Okay. That I'd like to to discuss, uh, and I thought this one was probably the most interesting because it is, in my mind, I think it's the dumbest. Uh argument against Ayn Rand. Uh-oh. So basically, I saw a bunch of people, uh, definitely more than like three, who were saying that Rand wouldn't take the positions that she did if she was poor. And mm. that, therefore, that you know, objectivism is wrong. Uh, one of them I thought was very interesting. I don't have the, quote, the exact words he said, but if I'm paraphrasing here. He was said that sociology or sociology says that uh, Rand was an anti-communist who basically got converted to anti-communism because she came to America because it was anti-communist during the time or something like that. Mm. And I I thought that was the worst argument I think I've ever heard because A, it just doesn't understand Rand's actual history uh, nor does it even understand any history at all. Uh, it's the complete opposite of actual history. So I, I would say this, and I would I would add to that last comment that there was a recent article in uh, Quillette about uh, Rand that didn't that took a similar position, but they said that Rand was anti anti communist because her family was attacked by Bolsheviks, and that skewed her whole life. And it was repeated throughout the article. Like you know, we can't judge her. T- it's we can't judge her too harshly because, you know, f- her parents lost everything in the co- in the Bolshevik Revolution, so it's like um, therefore. But but the the implication was that her point of view is skewed away from reality, and um, I mean, with regards to her being poor, she was definitely poor when she came to America. When she worked in Hollywood, she worked as a waitress for a period of time. She she just really liked working in Hollywood, and she wouldn't change it for the... She didn't feel bad about it. And uh, she was determined, as many other actors, I would assume, that take waitressing jobs, uh, to stay in that area. I think, I think another thing to int- of, of interesting note there was the misunderstanding of history. So, unlike what many people commonly think, America wasn't uh, as anti-communist back then as it was, say, like, after World War II. Um, in fact, most, um, like, a lot of the American uh, newspapers at the time were very pro-Soviet Union, pro-communist, uh, because they had a lot of their editors and a lot of the their their head head guys in the Soviet Union just partying it up, 
uh, yeah, I'm reminded. Was, base. Wasn't the uh, there was a movie um, about the Mr. Jones? Mr. Jones. Movie. There was yeah, someone from mm-hmm. the New York Times sitting in Moscow. And yeah, that's absolutely true. Uh, and interesting to note is that that guy got like the he got like the basically the Nobel Prize in journalism or something like that mm-hmm. for his works on the Soviet Union at the time. Uh, even though he's the most corrupt, corrupt, uh, basically one of the most corrupt people in the world. He, but and, he, he wasn't the, he wasn't, he wasn't, he wasn't corrupt in like a criminal sense. He was a true believer in communism. Yeah, yeah, but he was corrupt in that he kept yes. the truth. He kept the truth, and I think that's that's probably one of the most corrupt you can get, being so dishonest and you know just that that's a complete evasion of reality. Uh, it's it's either an invasion that he doesn't want to believe it's happening, even though he knows that it's happening, and he knows that as a journalist, he probably I wouldn't say the duty because that that would be the wrong, but he, in order to remain true to himself, he has to he has to expose this information, or he was just a complete and utter evil person who knows that it's happening and just keeps it away from the people so he can basically party it up. Keep carding it up, but my my point my point is bringing this up is that during that time America wasn't as anti-communist mm-hmm. as people think it was, and so I would say that Rand was probably in the minority or like a small amount of people who was as anti-communist as she was. Uh, I I don't think America like the American culture influenced her anti-communist or her anti-communism. I think it's just the way that we operated showed her the difference between the two the, the fact that when she came to the, uh when she came to America she saw the skyscrapers in the sky compared to the the awfulness that was the Soviet Union that that's probably what really convinced her i mean why are those people mentioning it like was it not evidently clear that communism was bad in hindsight no to them it was that so the people are mentioning this is because they, I think fundamentally it comes down to this this subjectivist view that our our beliefs are necessarily determined by our environment. That if I'm poor, I'm going to inherently be socialist, or I'm going to inherently be operating in such a way that's going to want my welfare programs. Oh, who's going to hate the big capitalist media? It's this real like sociologist. Mm. Uh, viewpoint that like there's rules, there's laws determining society. Yeah, I, uh, I agree. It's uh, it's the Marxian point that your socioeconomic status affects who you are. Yeah, yeah. That like, and and the point they're trying to make is that if Rand was poor, therefore she would be big pro welfare, pro government. You know, uh, instead of the person she 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 was, and I think I think that's that's why I kind of called it the dumbest argument because it's just so ridiculous uh, to try and remove the free will or the, even the objectivity from Rand's statements. It doesn't even like contend Rand's logical position or it, it just contends that she, ooh, she would have different beliefs if she were different. Well, it doesn't As really challenge actually, her ideas though. Exactly. It doesn't challenge the idea and it's, it's just the poorest argument. But I saw it, I saw it quite a few times uh, okay, and that's why I thought it, it needed mentioning. Because when I see something quite a few times, that means to me that it's not—it's more of like this thing's kind of spreading around. 
it's I wouldn't say common, but in terms of like the arguments people try to use against Rand, mm-hmm. it's it's common. Uh, so is the solution to this one to either say, well, even in your premise, she was poor during a period of time, or is it this doesn't discuss the actual ideas anyway? So what is the point? Well, yeah. Yeah, so I I think the actual so if you wanted to try and rebut such a person, there's there's a couple avenues. You could probably just break down the whole statement in in full. You could bring up that a it doesn't it doesn't actually contend her ideas. It just contends her as a as a person. Uh, b that people aren't determined by their social status. I.e., there's plenty of poor there are like people who are in low socioeconomic status who support. Uh, I guess you could say capitalist ideas who support uh even objectivist ideas you don't need to be rich to believe in objectivism uh yeah and 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 then you can of course you could bring up that they're just wrong in the sociology aspect yeah do i actually have a question i have a question for you uh do you think that there's any actual benefit or like to say like sociology as a science is there any actual like truth to it because from what I understand of like the concept of sociology, of course, trying to figure out like the laws determining uh, societies, to me that just does that seems like a really bunk science. So it, it, I'm curious if you have any like knowledge on that. Um. So we're looking for trends and patterns in uh, in numbers from people. So we're trying to abstract some sort of information about them. On its own, I don't think it's enough. And bearing in mind that even the subject that I study a lot on economics, that's also not far removed from, from sociology to some degree. Yes, it has some numbers, but it's still in the humanities, it's not a STEM subject. And uh, I'm quite aware that if I want to make numbers, or if someone else wants to make numbers fit the bias or case, it's not difficult at all to, to come up with it. So I think to some degree it's it's either it's either I would say the start of something as in there may be a pattern here and it needs further investigation that's like as much as sociology can take you or social sciences sorry um and then you have to look for like a mechanistic reason for what happened and or sometimes it's just flat out used in a very ne- in a very poor academic way, very poor scientific way to prove a bias. So it's not great uh, as it currently stands, in my opinion. Yeah, to to me, it it kind of seems like a lot of the modern like sociologist stuff that I see, or stuff that's mentioning sociology, is just. Uh, I just think it's bad science because it's trying to find the the mechanisms behind like human relationships as though there is mechanisms behind it. It's it's the materialistic view that everything has mechanisms. It's it's applying statistics to stuff and looking and and, and looking for something. Um, that's really all you can say it is. I know, it's just, it, I think that's how it's properly pro- 
properly probably used. I just see it so much used as like a justification for trying to demonstrate, uh, I guess you could say implicit beliefs, like like I mentioned, of people like, oh, you're poor, therefore you're more likely to believe this or something, therefore poor people, you know. Uh, I uh, think that one I think is out of, straight out of Marx. I don't think that's from social sciences. Um, social sciences would be like something like most people but. Be- believe this but actually do that something like that well marx is one of the fathers of sociology. he is studied there yes yeah, so of uh sociology certainly not in economics though but yeah <laughs> oh it has to be a very special branch of economics I, okay I, I also saw another uh weird belief. I don't remember the philosopher who derived this, but I've seen a couple people mention it. Uh, It was a criticism of Rand's ethics, in that they argue that Rand can't create a proper uh, way to I guess you could say argue against somebody who chooses to live for another goal. So like, they can't, you can't Rand can't justify life as the standard of value uh, because you could just simply live for another value, I guess you could say. What other value can you have? You only have the one life. I guess they're saying, no, they're saying like the reason why you're still alive is to like further some other value. And I came up, I don't want to say came up with because... I don't know if the other objectivist philosophers have talked on this or uh, could probably completely debunked it, and I don't want to sound like I'm pretentious. Oh my gosh, I'm so intellectual. Look at me making cool arguments. But Go on, make a cool argument was, then. Don't be shy. <laughs> but the thing I was thinking of was that this is very thoroughly argued against, uh, against by Rand before anybody even developed this argument, and that is the concept of altruism. I would say altruism as a moral system is exactly what these people are describing. Uh, it is living, I guess you could say, or putting uh, other people's lives as the standard of value by which you judge all other values. Uh, and I think the argument that one can use why altruism can't be really be the standard of value uh is because it, I think Rand points this out, it can't be practiced consistently. Oh, so if, uh, logically speaking, if the stand of, of your life was someone else, then you would be dead, or you'd have to sacrifice well, too much yeah, or something? Yeah, it's saying, it's it's saying, so if you were to, if you were to, I guess, yeah, let's use altruism for you. So, I, I watched a video uh, by, you know, by Rand, uh, in which she answers a bunch of questions it, on the psychology of altruism. And she talks about this in, in great depth uh, of how if, you know, you are, most people are altruistic, but most people aren't just like throwing themselves on a table to be eaten by, you know, by, by cannibals. cannibals. That's like the, yeah, like, that, that's the greatest sacrifice you could possibly do. Most people aren't doing that. And the reason for that is, is because you, the the altruist code of morality can't be practiced consistently. Mm. Uh, if you want to be able to live, which most people do, 
you have to make compromises with altruism. You have to make compromises with your morality and your standard of value to maintain living. Uh, I guess the thing that I would see people talk about, uh, I, I guess, as a response to this would be that, but but you're, the reason, like when you're put into a position where you could either, uh, I, I guess I could propose a, a, a rationalist lifeboat scenario here that has no application to reality, but just to make the purpose of the point, or just to make my point clear, uh, suppose that you you're uh, in a scenario where you have you know there's only two options you can choose. You can either choose the option that benefits your standard of value, uh, whatever it is, or you could choose the option to live. Uh, and what I saw some of the, a lot of the people mentioning is that if you're living for some other value, you would choose the live option so that you could further the value in the future so that you could continue on pursuing the value. And I, I thought that was a, a bad argument because ultimately the... How do I put this? So your standard... Okay, so the standard of value uh, is suppose it, suppose it is altruism. And you're making that choice. And you if you choose life, you're inherently being forced to say make a compromise um basically I, I guess to boil it down you would be saying that in order to be able to do more good you would have to commit evil uh i'm not sure what you mean by that last one um so so if if altruism is your standard of value and if you are being uh put in the position where you have to choose between a, a, a value which furthers altruism mm -hmm. or living, like you would, in order to, if you wanted to choose the other thing, you would have to basically like throw yourself in front of the train or something and die. Uh, I don't think that, I don't think, I don't think they like that. I mean, I, I prefer the example of, um, if you want to live altruistic for other people, you would, you would walk into a cannibal camp and, take off your clothes and walk into the cauldron full of hot water because then you're sacrificing your life so someone else can keep on living and they won't have to be eaten. Yeah, no, I think I think that I think that works with ultra but I'm specifically referring to the I I guess the argument that I've seen used that uh if I'm living to further another value, like, I'm living to further another value. So if I'm in this position, mm -hmm. why would I go throw myself on the cannibal table when I can rather live and spend my entire life benefiting people more than if I could throwing myself on the table and sacrificing myself? Well, if you because if you do throw yourself and sacrifice, if someone else gets to keep their life, so I'm not sure... What could be higher than that? And I think unless unless, unless you can save like thousands of lives. Yeah, no, I think that's way. what they mean. Like you're say you're saving thousands of lives by not doing it or something. Uh by living so that you can spend your entire life saving more people, uh and putting your life in such misery just so you can save more people. Uh but I think 
I think my point here is is that you're right when you say that that is the ultimate sacrifice you can make. That that's the ultimate good that you could do. Mm-hmm. I guess you could say. Uh, and that that's kind of the point I was making. That in order to do good, like in order to be able to live and be able to pursue that value of altruism, you would have to do evil. I guess you could say by every sing. I, I as Rand would put it. Every single bite that you take of yeah. food to sustain yourself is food that's not being given to another person. So yeah. you would have to be doing that evil in a sense. Do you, you kind of get where I'm at? Uh, at least you'll be living inconsistently with your life. So if you're whole- oh yeah, you're living you're living inconsistently, and that's that's the point is that you cannot practice that consistently. Yeah, you cannot live. So even even if it's better to live your whole life to save many many more people in in our example then it has to be a pretty miserable life you can't eat too much because if you eat too much then well some of that food could have gone to help someone else you can't uh, you you have to throw away sorry not throw away you have to give all your money to charity out, apart from the bare most uncomfortable minimum you can and uh, at some point like the pain pleasure thing kicks in and you'll be like screw this and yeah, I think that uh, unless you're a, a, a aesthetic monk or something or aestheticism or something, and that's that's kind of how people lived for quite a while in human history. Yeah, uh, well, a, a group of people anyway. All of them, all people, you mean during the Dark Ages, maybe? Yeah, no, that's kind. I was kind of referring to like the 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 very dark the very dark ages where extra dark basically that that was seen as the 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 most good you could do was to live the lifestyle of which you barely ate anything i think it was augustine who, uh, yeah i think it was the religious people specifically though <laughs> unless everyone was re- unless you were first saying everyone was religious i'm pretty sure most eh, i think most people were uh even yeah, I would say most people were. I've actually, I've actually saw a debate recently, which was super stupid. I have to say, it was um, that uh, that infrared guy with another guy I've seen, but I'm not super impressed with his with his debate style. But anyway, he was saying that capitalism has been around for hundreds of thousands of years, and I'm like, what? And then he was like, basically he was making the argument, this is the point, sorry, that uh, people are inherently selfish, therefore cap- therefore capitalism existed um, for hundreds of thousands of years. And, uh, and to some degree, I mean, it, it got me thinking because there's a lot of people saying we're inherently a tribal people, a pack animal people. Um, we do better like in, in tribes and Maybe over like you know, hundreds of thousands of years, we potentially have some biological adaptations for that. Which so I'm I'm open to the idea, but um, obviously we are still selfish. Uh, so maybe like the selfishness manifested itself in the sense that a tribe would be to our selfish advantage at this point in time because it's very uh, difficult to live without it. But you know, with capitalism, with industrial industrialism, we um, we've moved away from that. We no longer need a tribe necessarily. Um, we we can do fine on our selfish selfish selves, to some degree. 
we still we still like other people and we still need to socialize with them, but we choose to. Um, so I wonder if that's selfish. So this is like the thing I wonder if we're inherently selfish, which I obviously to some degree we are, and if if we're inherently a pack animal kind of kind of people. Yeah, I think I actually think that's a really interesting point. I wasn't thinking. I was thinking about. That. I feel like a lot of people make this these huge appeals to evolution. Yeah, you can't disprove it mid-debate. It's like you can. Well, it makes sense, but I can't prove it. No, yeah, but they make a lot of appeals to evolution as though like evolution is the good. Basically, they're saying that because I, I've seen plenty of people say like because evolution. Uh, because we evolved in like a tribal, uh, you know, we're because we evolved as social animals, I guess you could say. That's the word uh, I was looking for, social yeah, animals. Social an- I'm yeah. just translating because- it in my head, and it doesn't sound good. Yeah, okay. <laughs> because people, people are like that. Because we evolved in, in, you know, in tribes, because that was evolutionary beneficial. That therefore collectivism good or something like that. Uh. And I, I I don't know, I just see all these appeals to evolution as though this, like, big, um, I guess you could say substitute for God, uh, that evolution oh. is the, the final say. Oh, oh, no, we didn't. Oh, no, we didn't. That's a, that's a, that's pretty triggering, I would say. Like, evolution is the substitute for God. Because to be honest, like, Pete, John Peterson uses evolution a lot for moral claims i'm not i don't i don't think i'm wrong when i say that though spicy i feel it's 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 not i'm not wrong where people you know as soon as you bust out evolution in the argument oh we evolved this way therefore that's that you know uh um, or this proves something so let, let me uh, let me uh, so let, let me flavor that a little bit let me layer it sorry um there's also something that I've heard recently that capitalism evolved naturally. That uh, there was no government that says, "Okay, now we're doing capitalism." It just kind of happened. And to be and to be fair, I would say yes, but we also had, in my opinion, we also had the evolution of property rights through, and specifically, I mean, in the in the UK, ever since the Magna Carta in the 13th century. So, well, I really hope I got that one right because I'm pretty sure the Magna Carta was 12 something. Um, if it was 11-something, I just embarrassed myself. But uh, I, I think basically, like, uh, over time in the UK, we had, like, evolution of property rights, and then the, the Magna Carta, and then, like, Henry VIII did something. And uh, then we had, like, uh, Cromwell and everything. And at some... Over time, there was, like, a shifting of power from the king to aristocrats, from aristocrats to the serf, from the serfs to the freemen, from the freemen to being able to buy a house, from being able to buy a house to be able to vote. And it just seems... And, and for example, Russia did not have any of, of these evolutions at all. I remember specifically, like, the the rich people that conquered the... Sorry, the conquer that controlled the agriculture or the, or the fields or the land. They specifically stopped the peasants and the serfs from gaining these property rights. Or even, even the idea of one day they may be getting property rights. They they stopped it in its place. 
And I think that in the UK, and, and, and obviously the Netherlands, once you had these uh, property rights, and then capitalism evolved. So this is, my, this is the claim I've heard, and it seems to make sense with me, but again, on the back of the idea of individual rights and property rights. And socialism obviously does not, does not uh, evolve. You have to force it to happen, right? But Marx would make the claim that we, in, we used to have primitive communism, which is something he uses, or back in the day, like when we were a tribe and we shared everything and uh, all the food we found we would share across the tribe. And I'm thinking, and it always made sense to me that we, we did, we possibly could live that way. But in that recent debate I had, Sorry, not I had, I didn't have it, that, that I saw with that infrared guy and the other guy. Um, he was saying something, and this kind of did make sense to me, saying like, maybe it was a mix back in the day, maybe it was like we shared like the, some food we would share across the tribe, but I'm pretty sure like my spear was my spear. Like uh, that, that was mine, you can't take my spear. And I would have had, and, and like people in the tribe would have had some of their own stuff, some of their own decorations, necklaces, stuff, tools, which they may or may not share. And, um, I mean, it's obviously irrelevant to today. It's just something to think about in terms of evolution. I, I don't know. What do you think? So, I, I guess what I, would, what I would say to this is, I feel like that doesn't really contend a lot of the communist beliefs. Because, you know, the communists make this distinction between private and personal property. It's so like, stupid, oh, yeah. It's, oh, no, it is, it's, it's dumb. Yeah. They, which they define like pro private property is that what you make a profit from and personal property is that what you personally use it's like it it doesn't make any sense there's no i don't want to get into what why private personal and private property are dumb but their their argument is that private property is banned or whatever but personal property is fine so i i just don't know if that really if it really contends with the idea that the, the that it was not communist uh because they old they did they would have said that like yeah you can own your own spear but you can't own the the i guess you could say the the houses that everybody lives in you can't own that yeah i don't the tribe think owns that i don't think those houses will share at all um i'm not i'm not that familiar on my uh, on my my uh I mean, even Tribe, even like uh, tribalistic theory, even like um, nomadic tribes, they have their own tent. Like every family has a tent; they don't share tents. No, but what I mean, by, like you can't own another family's tent. They own their tent. Yeah, they own their tent. They live in their tent. There's no sharing of that. I mean, maybe the there are all other things that I they can't. share, but uh, the tent is where the magic happens, uh, and, and you're not allowed in. I don't. I don't like rent my tent out. Yeah, the, the, people, the tent is is off limits <laughs> unless unless you uh, plan on joining me for other activities. But um, oh, yeah, I said that's where the magic happens. <laughs> but but uh, yeah, yeah. I I I don't think I, it's relevant. I, I just think, but if if you are making the claim, or if I am making the claim that um, capitalism evolved naturally, that is a strong claim in a debate. I feel. Um, but even if you say that, they'll just say, well, prescriptive and normative are not the same. 
Just because it did happen doesn't mean it should be that way. Like, okay, whatever. <laughs> <laughs> but no, yeah, I, I, I agree with your the the original idea that capitalism is something that evolves naturally. Uh, but I wouldn't say it evolves naturally in that in like a, it was a determined set. I mean, it it came with an understanding of what you pointed out. It came with an understanding of property rights. Yeah. Of 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 respecting individuals' rights to their own property. Uh, their rights to their own lives, um, and I I would also say it came about with uh new forms of machinery, uh, where I'm I'm less focused on producing food for myself. Now I have excess, which I can sell to more people. I guess you could say, uh, yeah. And I think that those those things in combi- in combination is what capitalism just naturally evolved out of Mm. so with capitalism you already had excess you mean yeah i'm saying i'm saying with like with with the development of uh of machinery allowed people to produce excess like goods of like shirts and and uh pots pan whatever produce excess goods which the serfs are now able to move away from their uh farming jobs like uh into the the machinery jobs that and i feel like that was kind of like the growth the birth of capitalism as we know it i i would say um probably happened even earlier with uh oxes Pulling like this thing that plowed the field and division of labor with uh, Adam Smith with the pin factory. I'm not that familiar on my capitalist history, but oh, it's it's riveting. So I'm not I'm not gonna make I'm not gonna make any strong claims on this. But so it's, if if it happened earlier, it happened earlier. Here's yeah, a, but I do agree that it it came out naturally. Here's another thing that it, that happens naturally that uh, socialists don't like. Uh, are you ready for this one? Yeah. Are you familiar with the with the Pareto distribution? Per, Pareto? No, I'm not familiar with the Pareto distribution. Have you heard 80/20? 80/20. Does that mean like 80% of the world starved or no. saved from starvation? Goodness no, me, no. Like so <laughs> so the Pareto distribution or the Pareto principle is that there's uh, inequality everywhere in nature in eco- specifically in economics but also in science, physics and and other areas. Um, so, for example, if you were to work in a business, uh, 20% of the customers bringing 80% of the revenue, something like that. Are you? Have you heard that before? 20% of your shirts uh, are used 80% of the time. Eighty percent of the uh, usage of your carpet happens in twenty percent of the space of the of the square something of the carpet. Is this new to you? Yeah, this is new. Oh, I've never. Does heard it make sense before. though? What I'm saying. I think I think so. So are you saying that like? Uh, there's like this kind of like uniform guideline referring to 
um, I guess you could just say principles and nature of. It's it's in nature too. It's it's started from economics, but it is kind of like a very well proven uh, theory pr- slash principle. But um, you you can you can it's on Wikipedia. It's it's quite well well proven already. Although people don't exactly understand how, but but let me give you an example. Even in nature, so let's say you have a a thick forest, and let's say there's a a, a, s- a specific type of plant that grows just a little faster than all other plants. Yeah? Just like 2%, 5% faster. So that plant will grow faster than the other plants, will be a little bit taller than the other plants, will get more of the sunlight than the other plants. The leaves will block sun, will block uh, the sunlight to the other plants because that's a little bit taller. And as a result, 50% of the forest will be this plant. Kind of makes sense. So if you would if you were to see like a distribution of the type of plants and their numbers, then it would be like the first one would be fifty percent on the graph would be this. Then it will like have a steep decline for the other plants and be like it will tail off. But but this sort of graph is everywhere. So for example, if you were to well. It would be easy if, if you knew this stuff. I'm I'm blaming your your education system to be honest. Um, <laughs> so, okay, so I'm I'm looking at the econ uh, how it works in economics on the Wikipedia. So, could you just explain to me? So, how does this specifically relate to inequality? Okay, cool. Uh, so basically, this says that this Pareto distribution, where you have even in, in, in in economics, when you have some people that are rich, you'll always have some people rich, and some people are poor. Some plants that grow more than other plants in the forest, some customers that pay more money, a, a small handful of customers that pay more money than all the other customers, a small handful of products that sell more than all the other products. All the examples I gave, you will always have some sort of Pareto distribution of it, if, if you look. It will always be there. And uh, because and this is like a, just a fact of reality, a fact of nature. And what I am, and back to socialism, <laughs> this long preamble, is that um, socialists basically are fighting Pareto principle wherever they see it. Which, if you were to appreciate Pareto distribution, means it's, it's stupid because it's simply everywhere. It's just fighting reality, which is clear what, clearly what they're doing. And and whenever and every time like I I said this, they were like, "Well, uh, just because it's normative doesn't mean it's moral." And I, okay, sorry, just because it's descriptive doesn't mean it's normal. It's normative. Anyway, I feel like they're not even consistent in that regard. They only use that saying when it applies to the beliefs that would harm their position. But as soon as as soon as they bring up that. Uh, man was like naturally collectivistic or something, or is he, they're like that? That seems very absent from their their position. Uh, well, they they don't that, ca- they, they don't care, but to some degree, even me saying that Pareto distribution exists, 
automatically kind of means that someone who did get rid who did get rich doesn't necessarily mean that they exploited anyone or did something bad to get it. It just means that some people are better at let's say things that make money than others, and as a result there's this distribution but um I don't think they factor that in as well, but anyway. There's, there's also a, a corollary to the Pareto Principle called Price's Law, which is more with... Um, I, I, I consider it like team building or um, how to allocate workers, both in humans and insects and animals. But um, it basically says that uh, a square root of the number of people that you have will do 50% of the work. And the rest would do the other 50% of the work. So if, for example, you have 100 people, 10, 10 people will do 50% of the work on a particular task or project, and the other 90 would do the other 50%. It just kind of happens, yeah. So, for example, um, if, if I work in a, in a company and we're working on a particular project, if it's something I'm very involved with and I'm very familiar with, then I'll be one of those hyper-productive people. But even someone like me, if I'm put in a slightly different project and I'm not that familiar and I, I'm not that involved and they don't call me to help as frequently, then I'll just like not have that much to do and I'll be one of the less productive people. But but another another way of saying this in... in uh, in my world, is the more people you add to a, to a project, the communication becomes harder and people become less productive and you need to have more meetings. So when we structure teams, instead of, so let's say, instead of having a really large 100-people team, you if you have three, let's say you have three 30-people team, all right, so I'm going to have to calculate this now. Hold on, I think it's... Okay, so okay, so let's say there's 30 people and the, so it's like three groups of three and the square root of each team of, of like isolated team of 30 is, is a little bit over five, five and a half, but let's say five for argument's sake. So now that we've slid into three teams of three, instead of before we had 10 people that were hyperactive, that were hyperproductive, now we have 15 in total. So if you have smaller teams and it's it works out better, and it some it somehow does. Obviously, to mm -hmm. a point, but uh, yeah. Yeah, so there's like a mathematical calcul calculatable point at which you know you're most efficient. Uh, teams of people, but also like ants and stuff. Like ten percent of ten, sorry, not ten percent. Square root of ants will do most of the work, and the other will just run around. <laughs> Yeah, so it's 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 yeah, this isn't uh, this <laughs> this isn't objectivist whatsoever. But uh No, it's it's interesting. It's interesting. It it does it does pop up in reality. In in a sense, in a sense I could be doing a disservice to objectivism by mentioning it, but uh or or um we were talking before about social sciences and these are, you know, some patterns that reoccur uh, in, in nature, I mean, obviously, it helps that they're ma mathematically based, so it's more convincing. Um, 
because people think math predicts everything and is is ultimately correct no matter what and i think even objectivists say something about math specifically but uh, i'm not clear on that uh, that exactly but yeah there is Pareto distribution in nature and everywhere you look and socialists hate it they hate the Pareto principle they, they hate inequality of any kind yeah everything should be equal oh uh i forgot to mention this uh i remember in the some conversation you were noticed you you were talking to me about you how you were working on something about how people package deal profit maximization yeah profit prioritization yes you think you could elaborate um yeah so i've noticed so this is a bit difficult to explain but but basically people package deal profit prioritization meaning sorry i'll just say it and then i'll explain package deal profit prioritization with profit maximization now, profit maximization is in a company, I'm trying to maximize my profit, but I choose a particular activity. Let's say I make, uh, I, I'm a restaurant owner and, and I'm also the head chef and I, and I try to make food that people will like. So maximizing profit in this example is I try to make the food as best I can and only focus on, on things that the customers like and are happy with. And anything that doesn't make the customers happy doesn't maximize profit, and I should just cut it out because it's a, it's a waste in a sense. And um, profit prioritization is profit... Sorry, so in profit maximization, the human is before the profit. The, the, the human is... is like, if you want to get profit, you have to please the human being. Therefore, inherently, profit is uh, helps people pursue their happiness, live, live their life better, so on and so forth, which means it's inherently a good, a good and moral thing. Profit prioritization means you put the, the money ahead of the human and say that profit is just something out there as an abstract concept. It's like money floating in the ether, and you should do everything you can to grab it. So, in the case of the restaurant, you could say, well, I, I should make really crappy food that costs very little, and then I save on my, um, on my uh, expenses, and I make more profit. But obviously, in reality, and even I, to the degree where I harm my customers, but obviously, you know, long term, this isn't the way to make profit, and to some degree, the restaurant cost has some upfront cost so so this whole concept if you if you apply to reality does not make any sense Un unless you're saying you know it's a one time restaurant that that folds into paper and then i'm i'm cheating people taking the money and running away and then setting up a restaurant out of out of paper mache again very quickly and then cheating some other people but but, but the people who believe in profit pri prioritization think it's make earning a wage and scamming people out of money is the exact same thing because you you obtain profit uh, so it's kind of like um, explaining this to people. It's very difficult because they're already like in the mindset that that I, I, either they're in the mindset that profit is immoral or can be immoral or just neutral and people are immoral. But it's not it's not the case that people see profit as a positive thing inherently. Well, yeah, that's because they believe that's because they believe that like people because people have like original sin or something. 
that they're gonna they're gonna go and they're gonna commit. Uh, they're gonna they're gonna work for greed for self for complete and utter selfishness, exploiting people and whatnot. And then the socialists believe that profit is just utterly immoral because it's like intrinsically, uh, yeah, it's just in, it's an intri- in, intrinsic immoral thing. By the um, way, I I would add one more thing to profit prioritization. Um, I wouldn't even. If I was prioritizing profit, I wouldn't even chose chosen to open a restaurant. I would just go work in finance or in a casino or something. <laughs> just scam people. But even the people who who well, not not uh, even not even scam people, but because the because the premise here that I enjoyed making food, but if I'm prioritizing profit, then screw my feelings. I just want to make the most money. Yeah, I um, I think that's that's a part of pri- profit prioritization. Yeah. Uh it's kind of it's kind of the uh removal of the concept of profit as it applies to a benefit of one's life. I th- uh, I think I think the best way to look at it is intrinsic theory of value and objective theory of value. So I I don't mean to throw like big concept, but I'll just explain quickly what I mean and how it relates to this. So objective theory of value, say look, we objectively look at look at reality, we realize that the money that, that it's a human being that, that has that money and we have to interact with interact and trade with other people, please them in some way, and at the same time we have to do stuff we enjoy doing, otherwise what's the point? in life like we we need to live our own life we need to do things that we that we like and, and hopefully or if we can tweak it to some to some degree things that we like doing we can maximize the element that we like that also works with other people and we'll get this like symbiotic well i don't know that's a good word, harmonious 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 relationship maybe i watched venom or something recently i was using the wrong word <laughs> harmonious relationship with other people and it's a very positive thing so now like profit becomes like really cool like a really cool concept that you should be happy about but if it's like uh, the intrinsic theory of value then there's money out there disconnected from human beings and you need to get as much of it and how do you get as much of it well you can either be honest if you have Kantian uh, morality because you're a good person and you you don't listen to the you know the devil sitting on your shoulder or whatnot, or you can be evil and just scam people and steal from people and get as much of this money uh, for yourself as possible because it's detached from everything else. There will be no consequences from it. The only the only consequence that you may get from it is your own conscience, Con- like uh, you know the the angel sitting on your shoulder. Um, yeah, that's that's what I think. And it's something I'm trying to articulate perhaps a, a little bit better, but it, it's just something I'm digesting for the time being. No, yeah, no, I think I understand what you're saying. So you're basically you're saying, you know, the, there's the intrinsic theory of value of money is just an end in itself. Yeah. It's something to value for the sake of valuing it for without any regard for what you're going to use the money for. Uh, yeah, I don't, true, I don't yeah. think there's many. I don't think there's many people who are rich who actually believe that. Um, because I'm pretty sure most people who are rich have most of their money in physical items. 
that are of value to them uh, or of value to a business or a part of the business that they that they control that they they actually have very little money in like spendable amounts oh in the bank or under the uh, mattress you mean yeah yeah i i i mean yeah I, I agree with that like they if they're rich it's because they ha- typically they're an entrepreneur they they had have a company that did well no matter what uh, industry like they just really liked that particular industry even at the time it wasn't doing that well but they kind of made it work and they're doing they're doing well and because they own large shares in their own company that they founded um they're doing well and you know they the whole process from start to finish with the company they uh they really wanted to make a product or make a service that people were really excited about they were really excited about it they thought it was solving a need in society but also made them feel happy to work on it or or productive to work on it and um and yeah they they set out for it they they led the team they took some risk they tweaked they chopped off parts that were waste and increased the part that were uh, made the customers more happy and they they did something great they took young kids to the company and they uh taught them how the industry works and they saw all this talent and they put this talent together in like a very good team and and they made it work and great on the cover magazines and and rightfully so and then you have someone like bernie madoff who basically scammed people took their money led a miserable life according to to him because he constantly had to lie to people and uh, had very tragic results for himself, his family, and everyone that was involved with him. To, to some degree, like, you know, a lot of uh, wealth was lost through this kind of scheme as well. Whereas the entrepreneurs that just wanted to maximize profit and make other people happy created a lot of wealth. No, you're, you're 100% right. It's, it seems like most of the people who are, like, the uber-wealthy, I mean, like, the people who made billions of dollars, Mm-hmm. Uh, the highest entrepreneurs they're the people who focus on things like profit maximi- uh, maximization mm-hmm. of pro- building wealth in society of providing actual services that people want like amazon or uh spacex or whatever you you whatever company you want to pick uh providing these companies that people want and then there's like the i guess you could call them semi wealthy in comparison the people who make like maybe millions of dollars and they make it through like scamming people it doesn't seem like those people live very happy lives uh because ultimately they're not building anything for themselves i think also you have to factor in that there's no way that scamming is a long-term thing there's just no way like you can get away with it for so long and then something will will uh will fall you'll get arrested by the police some someone will tell on you or what i don't know it's it's definitely not a long term and obviously we hear of the ones that managed to get away with it for the longest but they still most of them were still caught if not all of them and we don't hear about like the small scammers that got caught like a week later or a month later this is these are if if again if you apply the world's long term to it there's only one true way of doing it and that is just working hard producing something that you like and other people like and that is really it. That it's literally what Ayn Rand said. That she, my my wife, read this. Ayn Rand had like a an introduction to 
I think Atlas Shrugged. So, so she hasn't written Atlas Shrugged yet. She's writing in a in a diary about how how, how she plans to to make it, and I think Pike of Let later included that in the introduction to like a like a future release of of Atlas Shrugged, I believe. I believe, and um, she said something like, "It was really insightful." I have to say, it was very, very strong. You, I, I couldn't, I couldn't absorb all of it in one in the first go. I, I had to like just think about it and then come back to it later at another time. But she said something like, um, "People who want to build stuff, like the the heroes in Atlas Shrugged, they they just want to do it for themselves. They 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 want to do it. They don't care how other people necessarily um, react to it. They just want it to exist." Like for example, in the Fountainhead, uh, they were asking Rourke to build this fake area because it was a scam, and and they thought he's a terrible archi- architect. So uh, because he failed on these other projects, they thought he's a terrible architect. So he'll fail, and and they wanted him to fail so they can just say, well, it's his fault, and collect the insurance money or whatnot. But he was very successful. And he and and Rogue read this and he says, "Look, I, it doesn't matter what the reasons for this. All that matters was that I built it, I made it, I I brought it to the world. That's all he cared about. And he knows that other people will like it because it just makes sense in reality. Like, there's no way people don't like his uh, his buildings because his buildings are just good. It, it it's objectively good in reality. It's not fake. It's not it's not pompous. It's not." Pretending to be something—it's not. It's just functional and beautiful, objectively. Just, just. Oh, I suppose you can say beauty is a, uh, is something. But, but you know, a good book also is is beautiful, and a lot of people acknowledge that it is. And that that was what they were trying to do. So, I should actually re- read what she wrote. It was so good. It was really like concentrated cleverness. I have to go back to it. Um. But yeah. That that's basically what entrepreneurs are, and it, and we reward these people in society, and rightfully so. I mean, even if you look at the top richest people in the world, it's like uh, Jeff Bezos created a company, Elon Musk has eight companies, Bill Gates. It's not people. I mean, you have you have people like um, Warren Buffett that are genuinely good. Also, like the knowing where to invest money in parts of society is good. But like the majority of people on that list, they started something. They own shares in, in a very successful company, and that is the reason why they are rich. And if, even if they weren't on that 500 riches list, they would still do it. They would still try to do it, because that's all they care about. Like, if, if you talk to Elon Musk, he, he just wants to solve problems. That's what he's excited about. He, doesn't, he barely cares how much it costs. He, he, he was living on-site, uh, something SpaceX-related, they had this like foldable house that they. It was sorry. It was a house. It was a legit house, but it it comes folded and then they set it up and then it it stays forever. But it was like, a, like a one bedroom kind of house, and that's what he wanted to do. He sold all his houses, by the way, and he's living in this cheap house. He has billions of dollars on paper, but he doesn't care. He just wants to solve problems. That's what excites him. I think that those people. Those. I think that those people. Those people are the the most, I guess you could say, the most moral people in the world. Uh, yeah, and they're like they're so confused. Honestly, they're so confused about why people say bad things about them on on the internet. Like, they don't know what they're saying and what reality, what what they're saying to what reality they're talking about and the reality they live in. 
it really is a shame that uh, people like that are. I feel like they're they're. I don't want to say coming more and more rare. It's definitely more they're rare. Become, they're they're becoming more and more discouraged. Yeah. From doing the things they do, because I guess you could say people are starting to become the 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 their own destroyers. They these people who bring so much wealth and so much uh, value to our lives. I I mean, I just look at Amazon. Like Amazon is a great example of just how much people like focus on the little flaws of Amazon, yet ignore the vast amount of wealth that it actually brings them. Uh, I think if Amazon just disappeared like right now in the blink of an eye, I think a lot of it would people would definitely be feeling it a lot. Uh, yeah. Um, I I think they would obviously say like, "What? You're not letting people pee in bottles and stuff?" And like, "How could you?" And like, look, th- there are some there, are, there have been like three cases of that, and let's say oh, the, there potentially could be some cases where Amazon is um, how can it cycles through through workers quite quickly because they they work very hard and then they they quit and. They need new workers, and I do believe that that is a thing with Amazon. But in either in either which case, I'm not saying everything's perfect, and certainly neither Elon Musk and Bezos are uh, 100% perfect. But but look, they have delivered an incredible company that us during the us during the lockdowns was very helpful, and uh, even in my my work, we use Amazon products a lot. Amazon services, sorry, and um, yeah, it really it really changed a lot of things, including uh, Elon Musk was working on cars that save the environment, and like people seem to have forgotten that, and are saying, well, he got subsidies from the government. Yeah, it was subsidies. You wanted the environment thing to happen faster, so the government incentivized people to make it happen faster. And now you're saying that's the only reason why I got rich. Or, or all these people that um, instead of focusing on either building new companies because it's the most moral thing to do or at the very least working in companies where people like that uh, invented something or, or innovated something, they are picketing, they are working in, I don't know, things where... So, like in the culture, it's treated in 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 a mostly negative way. And I and I was I saw a uh, online conference about uh, innovation. And the and the issue of envy did come up as one of the things that stifles innovation, and people would just not pursue these things. They don't want the heat from it, or less people would be interested, and therefore less people would even start the innovation process uh, because they see it as immoral. And I remember uh, there is a very good economist called Deidre Mikalski, I think, and she wrote about the great enrichment. Oh, that's her thesis. Well, the reason why we got rich, or two reasons, sorry, the reason why uh, we got rich in the last few hundred years, whereas in the rest of humanity we were dirt poor, um, she says that one it was ideas or intellectual ideas, and the and the other reason was uh, culturally we we really respected these sorts of people. So we are definitely at a time where we don't respect these sorts of people, 
and uh, there are fewer and fewer people who are willing to innovate or, or the people who are willing to innovate basically like ignore everyone else very aggressively but uh, it's sad it's sad where we are um, you know uh, Lino Paikov predicted this in his uh, dim hypothesis hypothesis and um, it, it kind of makes me not want to think about how bad things are and just kind of like narrow my focus on, on my own world and not look too much outside in our culture and stuff but it, it's, it saddens me uh, a lot that people mistake profit for what it isn't people mistake innovation for what it isn't uh, people don't I, I would say that even and I'm going to make a video about it a bit later that people on the left may not even like economic growth that much or like economic growth it's nice, but what about inequality? What about uh, the ecology? What about this? These are more important things than economic growth and, and innovation and improving people's lives and reducing poverty as a result of economic growth. All the things that I'm familiar with in economics, it just seems everything's upside down on its head and ideological. And it, 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 it saddens me a lot. And on that we'll end. No, yep. just kidding. <laughs> very, very end on a sad. And on a sad note, note we'll end the thing. <laughs> I don't know. Gotta keep, keep the people emotional. Yeah, make people think. No, don't say something positive before you end the thing. <laughs> yeah, I'm. I'm still like. It's. It's interesting. It's. <laughs> I haven't, as as maybe people who are listening can tell, I, I haven't fully formed these ideals like in a in a very coherent way where I can where I can answer them in like one sentence answer or like a yes or no answer in a debate kind of understanding. I'm still kind of studying it and and uh, integrating it. It's not fully integrated at the moment. What I'm what I meant to say, um, but it, it does feel like I'm. On the right track, I think. I think you would agree, right? No, yeah, I think. I think we're probably both like in that in that position. I would certainly think I'm in that position. Uh, still integrating the, my beliefs and uh, forming coherent thoughts. Um, so I I was gonna ask in the the DDV show. Mm -hmm. if what DDV show? Oh, Diego's super lazy. What he hasn't done in ages, Diego. If you're listening, Diego, <laughs> what's going on? But I was gonna ask if anybody has, uh, if does anybody know of any like say objectivist book, mm. uh, that focuses on coming up with the the actual like politics of an object. Like this is how the laws would look. This is this is what the law would be like, or something. There uh, is something for law specifically. I can give you. But what do you mean law? Or do you so, mean something so what, else? No, yeah. What I do mean law. So, so for example, uh, let's say voluntary taxes. So, what I mean by that would be how would a voluntary tax system work? How would the, uh, I guess you could say, what sort of tax, like what sort of taxes would there be? Would this tax exist, and how would that be collected, and whatnot? Stuff like just stuff like that. I understand like the morality behind voluntary taxes. I think that's the given. So I uh, I would I would say this. Um, probably ask me. 
the only places I've seen it is Yaron Brook talks about it. When he talks about it in front of students, they do question him and he does not always have all the answers for them. But to be fair, we're not anywhere near it for him to think about everything. Um, so it is it is voluntary tax voluntary taxes. Uh, it's two things, sorry. Do you mean police specifically or like how do we fund the government? No, yeah, I do. I do. I, I, I kind of mean it like that. I mean like... Uh, the specific taxes that there would be. Okay, so I'll, uh, I'll, I'll explain. So there's how two are. ways of funding the government uh, that we would approve of, and I, and I can add one that was there before the United States had income taxes, but two ways that we approve of. One is fees for services. So, for example, if you need a, a form to, for something, if you need a driver's license for something, or if you need, let's say, the police to uh, protect a large event or like you're calling the police can you please come to my parade or something and 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 be there to guard that would be a fee and you'd pay the police for that or like these forms and stuff like that the other one is voluntary uh not taxation but voluntary contributions where someone like knocks on your door and say we're collecting for the local police uh if you think they did a good job if you're satisfied with them would you like to donate a bit of money and um, on the whole, the economic situation is like this. People would have a lot more money because there w would not be any taxes, so they would be more willing to contribute, or let, let's put it this way, like the, the level where, where someone reaches the enough stage would be reached quicker, and then like beyond that enough, like they'll be more willing to contribute, or the example where, like, if I if I pay someone uh, on the street five dollars, uh, because five dollars isn't that expensive for me, because I have I have a lot of let's say more than f a lot more than five, then in that kind of society you'll have more money to then be able to contribute it. Still, it will probably be the case that the more richer people would contribute more, just like it is right now. Uh, that's fine. Um, but again, the idea is that because the people are contributing voluntarily, I feel there is some sort of uh, monitoring happening on the police, meaning uh, if they behave badly, they will get less contributions. Yeah, no, um, I probably would have some questions about that. I don't know if you maybe have all the answers, but my, my entire point of kind of bringing this up was that I still think that uh, there are some things that objectivism can, like, I guess you could say work on uh, in terms of the the full the fullness of the philosophy. Uh, I'm, I'm pretty. I was wa I was watching a uh, question the question and answering by Leonard Peikoff. Uh, it's on the Ayn Rand Institute. And he was mentioning there that there still are some things that he thinks that were like not fully developed in objectivism. Like Ayn Rand was still working on things before she before she passed away, uh, and there were still things she was working on. So I was I was thinking like the next step, maybe in objectivist philosophy or objectivist literature or something similar, would be to devise that full. Uh, 
a governmental system of like this is how the police would be funded on a local system on a on the on the state level or on the on the federal level or something like that uh huh? kind of similar to like how like the founding fathers would have done so when they're creating the country you know um uh, i i would say this as far as i know with regards to uh Pi- Peikoff, Peikoff. Um The things that Ayn Rand was working on before her death was um, two areas that she wanted to integrate with objectivism. One was math, and the other was uh, neurology. Neurology, sorry. And she believed that uh, if she would integrate those more then it will be very beneficial to objectivism and uh, even uh, Peikoff stu- uh, studied physics at a, late, a very late um, stage in his life in a similar kind of way he did use it though to develop his course on physics and philosophy which is very good by the way and um, the guy who was teaching him was also an objective. He wrote a book called The the Logical Leap or something about how uh, induction in physics works. But back to your, back to your uh, uh, political thing. I, to some degree, I, I, I would say you're right, but to some degree, we can't do like everything. We just kind of like... It's philosophy, after all. We just kind of present the principles, and, and some other people will work on them. Once we we get to that we get to that stage. Um, in terms of um, what I would say, in terms of how government was funded in the past, back in the day, it was. I don't think it was contributions, but it was certainly fees. Well, I don't know. I would assume it's some sort of fees. But largely, tariffs were a big deal to fund the government. And the reason was why tariffs was because in the Constitution, you were not allowed to violate people's property rights from that, during those, those days. I believe that there was an income tax during the Civil War, but not until 1913. And even after 1913, no, not all states uh, implemented an income tax. Some still don't. Uh, but tariffs were like um, hurting people's property rights outside the country, which was f- okay. Therefore, a lot of it was uh, was from that. I believe there were some other taxes, but not income. Um, and it, but in addition, the spending was like a tiny fraction of what it used to be. So there is that. Like I, I even have a graph of it. It's uh, it's just insane how much things went up after 1913, and then and then the the New Deal and everything. It's really like you see like a tiny sliver yellow line, and then like it jumps up with all different colors to like the sky. I'll show it to you at some point. But yeah, it's uh, yeah, so, yeah. Send it, send it to me after after our discussion. I'll I'll definitely take a look. So I I think my I guess my I agree that like. I I think I think you're right when you say like obje- there's only so much objectivism can teach you on on the actual like uh 
a political side of it in that it, it, it provides you with like the founding principles for it. And then somebody else is going to have to create, use those principles to form, formulate a theory of, of actual government. Yeah. Uh, my, I guess my, 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 uh, my ultimate idea was I really would like to see somebody do that. Somebody I mean, come up with a theory of, of law on, or a theory of laws and using objectivist principles. And I don't know if there's any objectivists who specialize in that area of, of, uh, um, I, understanding. I, I would say this, there is some, there is some stuff on the ANCAP stuff, philosophies, because they have been thinking about it for a very long time. And Murray, Roth, Murray Rothbard did originally like approach Ayn Rand. They want, he wanted to do something together with her, but she didn't agree. And then he, he mocked her and something. But um, the ANCAPs do have um, a lot of thought behind a lot of those stuff, which I envy to some degree. Uh, not, not, the, not the outright philosophy, but the fact that it's just thought out of, even though the answers are not great, just the quickness of the answers that they have uh, is something I'm envy of, envious of. Um, I I kind of I kind of see it. If you look at it as like reinventing everything from scratch, then it would be like a difficult task, and the ANCAP thing would be like closer. But if if you look at it like, look, we. It's still what we have at the moment. Like, you still have a government, you still vote, you still do all these things. It's just a reduction in government side, uh, government size drastically and uh, a strengthening of property rights, strengthening of individual rights. Then maybe it's a bit easier to digest. Or, or even like if you... Like, I have some uh, middle, middle steps to, that we can take before reaching the final step. So... We can do that first, and then like think about how to get to the, to the final step. But um, if it's just government like not intervening in the economy, to some degree, you can just say, "Let's go back to pre nineteen thirteen or the nineteenth century, how the government was run then." No, yeah, I, 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 I agree that like in the transitional, in actual transition, if we if there was an objectivist government and then we we're actually transitioning, it would be more of like a gradual thing. Uh, I guess I guess the my thought process. I really would like to see somebody come up with a you know just theories of law. So so one area, another area I could think of would be on like uh age laws. So like the age you're able to drink alcohol, the age you're able to drink the uh whatever. And I know Peacock and Rand uh mostly. They're like it seems reasonable that it would be at this time frame, uh, based on this evidence, and that th and that this is something we would leave up to such political philosophers or to such like political philosophers to to discuss to discuss and argue and decide. Yeah, I and I, I I feel I would just like to see that you know I would like to see that argument that discussion from. I think to some degree people. they may just leave it to someone uh, to even people to vote on, um, because you still have people making laws. You still have people voting, um, so I I don't know. To ANCAP, this would sound like horrible that we're telling people what they can do and not do, but uh, like you you still have that that whole framework of of, of law and and 
and again voting for public um like public life kind of thing um so i wouldn't say that's something we need to come up with or even even have an opinion on necessarily she did have an opinion of how laws should be written in an objective way as as op as as opposing in a completely subjective way which the judge can then any judge can they decide uh whether to rule one way or another because the idea is if you have objective laws then the legal system works uh, much smoother and um people know when they've broken the law or haven't broken the law and uh, judges can only um you know like the sandbox is much clearer judges don't have too much leeway in it so less corruption i suppose or less um there's different results obviously punishment is still up to the judge but there is um on youtube like a objective law interview with ayn rand which is really quite interesting um it's interesting because like the breadth of how many subjects she covered like she she was an author and then she developed her own philosophy and now she also has an opinion on on how laws should be written it's and it's really good so it's uh it's really amazing Yeah, so, I mean, to some degree, like, we are interested in government hands off the economy and pro and, and uh, individual rights and property rights strengthened so it's, then they're not valid. That's, that's really the biggest thing. I mean, everything else would stay, like, the, obviously, like, the government would have to be much, much smaller uh, and we won't have taxes, but that's kind of it. <laughs> like, everything else will stay. Yeah, I, I I do like that. I also like the uh, I also like looking at like theories of how uh, certain things that government used to perform would be replaced by private institutions. Yeah. Uh, for example, I don't know if any. Uh, I thought of like an, uh, an interesting way that uh, I guess you could say construct like con uh, I don't want to call them. Uh, I don't want to call them like limitations because it's not legal in any way. But like, suppose I would like to buy a new house, I could probably like pay for an outside observer to come inspect the house, see if it's structurally sound, mm -hmm. something like that. Yeah, you you can do. It. I mean, there are already mechanisms for uh, consumer protection and and um, ensuring the quality of of certain products from the free market. Um, is that what you meant, yeah? Yeah. And, um, there really are a lot of things that the, the market can do better. Like I, charities being one example, but uh, I, I really would like to, <laughs> to have another debate about uh, public and private charities, public welfare versus private charities. Because I think people really uh, hide that fact or completely ignore it, to be honest with you. But uh, I, I was also interested in, in my middle step, I was also interested to get like um, entrepreneurs into the social entrepreneurship space. So someone like Elon Musk developing um, like an under, underwater submarine with artificial intelligence that, that grabs plastic and collects them and puts it somewhere, I thought it was cool. 
or like uh, like uh, Jeff Bezos for affordable housing and um, I had some more other examples like uh, Steve Jobs for online education or that you could scale you know across the whole world and stuff like that so yeah I mean if we have if we have like disruptions disruptors and innovators in these areas that government so far has taken and done a, a, a very poor job in most cases, certainly in America. Um, I think I think we'll be able to see a lot of innovation, a lot of really exciting things happen. And I think even we would start moving away from continuously funding some something to actually solving it more in a, in a long-term kind of sense. Like, that's it, it's solved. So, if, for example... Jeff Jeff Bezos says, "I really want to work on affordable housing that you can, uh, you know, you make in a factory, fold it, it it arrives on site, you unfold it, you, you stick some concrete, and it's it's set, or you can do it like in layers or whatnot, and then like houses are ten thousand dollars, that's it, you own the house. Fifteen thousand dollars, you own the house. Yeah, you you potentially like if you look at like some reasons why people are homeless, like if if you can have these cheap house these houses." That are so so cheap, you could eliminate homelessness to some or to a, a very large degree. So, and you know, <laughs> I I just I think it's really exciting what we can do, and we can we're just like um, sitting home having like couch debates or family feuds about how to solve these problems over Christmas, but how to solve these problems, and. Um, or like what the gov what policy the government should do to solve these problems or uh what's the solution like we we can't even imagine what the solution is it'll just set the market free to to solve these problems and and i mean if we <sighs> well of course you can imagine what the solution is cuz then we'll just be the ones to do <laughs> well i mean maybe maybe you know some entrepreneur will think of something really clever that we can't even imagine that will really improve thing but but right now all the money is held in the government and if if like uh we had all these excess money that we were willing to spend on social causes then you know these things will happen or or, or even you know in the your own brook kind of way no we make a company that makes profit and 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 it helps everyone yeah if, even if in the case of like building houses like obviously if you wanted to build cheap houses and take like a Walmart approach to it. Well, Walmart specifically targets people on the lower end of the of the wealth scale, but they're obviously very very wealthy. So it, you can't make and and you know the whole reason of for, for putting Freddie Mac and Fannie Mae is because, well, people poor people can't afford to buy houses; they'll be locked out. So well, give the free market a chance to service these people. You haven't done so. You haven't given them a chance to innovate. You haven't given them the right to build in certain places that doesn't cost a normal leg and doesn't need several studies like uh, if it blocks out the sun for for a, a nearby school ground or if the earth is good enough or all that and then like 15 years till you approve it in california to build on this plot of land if if like all this was much much easier then you know houses could be a lot cheaper and we could have innovations like the folding, I'm just throwing the folding house, but we could have such innovations to build much faster and reduce homelessness. Because if 
I'm not saying like all of homelessness, maybe obviously some people have mental health issues, but if if the reason why they became homeless was because was because the price of house houses was too much, then at least those people would be taken care of under this circumstance by having houses that are considerably more affordable. Yeah, I think I think I very much. I don't I don't know how much I can add back further to that, but yeah, I'd agree uh, that we. I think really, it sh- yeah, I agree. Yeah, it probably should just be left up to the free market. Although I do I do think it's fun to theorize uh, about how these things are going to get done, especially when some socialist or whatever will bring up a specific example of how could this possibly be solved by the free market. How could it possibly be solved? Well, I, I have and, one for Medicare, right? Not Medicare, sorry, for healthcare right now. Well, the, in the US, you have direct primary care doctors. That basically, you pay like either $50 a month or $75 a month for a person. So like a, a net, it's like the Netflix of, of doctors. There's no insurance companies. You pay them directly. You can... If you have like a problem, you can send them an email, you could video chat with them or something. Look, I have something on my foot. What, what does this look like, doctor? And uh, they'll, you know, they'll check your health. They'll, they'll set prices for everything, MRI, x-ray, nothing's hidden. It's not like a hospital. And, it's, and if, if, let's say, you're not, subscri- you're not subscribed with them, but you need something, it's like $35 a visit. But the, and they don't have to pay... And now I'm going to elect to all these insurance companies, and now I'm going to elect to all the administration just to work with the insurance companies. And because um, the insurance companies have like different ways of working with them. So if you w- work in a particular way, the insurance company will pay you nothing. But if you do it a different way, they'll pay you the money that you should be getting. So they just cut all that out. There is a, I can send you a video of it as well. Um, yeah, it's like. It's not specialist care, it's like more general practitioner or like a family doctor kind of level. But if like um they'll go up they'll go up to you know uh x-ray, potentially MRI, blood work certainly. If you have like skin cancer and it's close to the skin, they will remove it. Uh but like you know, endocrinologist uh, or spine doctor or oh they'll deliver babies actually, I believe. But uh, but like if you need like a specialist, uh, that's not what they would do, and that would be something you may need insurance for. But at the very least, like decent basic care, you is very affordable right now. Uh, and the more this model works, the more people who have a- access to free care, and even people who can't afford this access. Let's say you have a charity to pay for people who can't afford to pay $50 a month or $100 a month, then then having a charity that needs to pay that small amount of money each month per person is vastly different than thousands of thousands or $50,000 per person. Or I, I don't know even what the, what the hospital charges people nowadays, but it seems to me like eye-wateringly high numbers. So, yeah. Yeah, I'm pretty sure I watched a video on like the like the small clinic uh, i think it was from the fee it was it was about the so about like the nurse uh these new like tiny clinics they basically provide you with the, those like 
very minimalist care of like of a checkup and something like that but they do it for like the fraction of a fraction of the price of say going to a a big hospital or a re- you know, the, to see the regular doctor covered by insurance um yeah i think i think um there is something in that where if you can um if you can have layers of doctors, like if a nurse can do something, then you know it's cheaper than a doctor, and there's be there'll be more of them. If like a like a midway doctor can do these certain things, then it's and it's easier to train them, and they don't have to spend so much money on their education. Then, you know, but yeah. There's also like the fact that there's an artificial like supply of doctors. Like the government is artificially yeah uh, controlling the supply. Absolutely, of doctors yeah. The a- AMA. Uh, I do have I do have a question for you. So I've heard some uh, people mention, uh, uh, maybe I guess you could say some socialists talk about how uh, the public is only a hundred is like fifty percent of the public wouldn't be able to survive a hundred dollar emergency or something like that. No, so it's uh, so this was before the pandemic, but fifty uh, percent of the public wouldn't be able to pay a $400 expense without going into debt. And, but, obvious, but obviously, during the pandemic, people went far more than $400 in, in expenses. They, they just got into debt, uh, but they were able to survive a year on some, some of them a year on something without being able to work. So uh, it wasn't that much of a... In actuality, a, a big of a deal as people were presenting. So yeah, so it isn't like a all. It isn't. I feel like it's more commonly used in like the the Marxian term of everything's about to collapse. We're in late stage capitalism. Yep. Uh, the catastrophizing it certainly, mm-hmm. and uh, the lockdowns are an example that obviously it didn't. It wasn't true. I don't think there is such a thing as that. So, hey, so much Marxian terminology. It's so awful. Late yeah. stage capitalism. No, there is no late-stage capitalism. It's just capitalism. It's early-stage socialism. That's what it really is. <laughs> By the way, um, I'm recently learning how much... Socialism is essentially dead. Socialism, Marxism, uh, communism is, is dead. You know what killed it? What? Welfare. You feel like that'd be the opposite thing. You feel like that would grow the concept of no, uh, the like the whole workers owning the means of production, like a distribute uh, like a distributive uh, sense where the workers get more money than than other people, or that's all dead. Like all this like Marxian stuff is dead, and 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 welfare or social democracies, Nordic models, all that kind of stuff that that killed it. Like dead in its tracks. People are not interested. Like all over Europe, even if there are parties that have like socialists or communists in their name, no one is actually pushing legit Marxist policies. It, it's it, and even like you know countries that have these even a very high degrees of welfare, some of them have conservative governments. So this whole like uh, socialism thing, it, it's dead. Like I can appreciate that socialists and Marxists think that it's cute that people hate capitalism more than they did before and they're starting to read Marxism. But when it comes to voting, nothing, zero, less and less. If you, if you take an example from the UK, 
we had Jeremy Corbyn like a year ago, and uh, you know he was like legit, legit um, socialist. The his uh, uh, finance guy took out Mao's red book in the middle of House of Commons and read a, a sentence from it. I'm not even not even joking. Um, and uh, he just got trampled completely in the elections. They say it was the worst election for Labour since 1935 or something. And if you look at it, the only person that the last Labour uh, government was uh, was Blair, that one which was kind of like neoliberal technically, or, or followed Margaret Thatcher. And they, and they won three terms in a row, like so 12 years. Um, and that was the the last time Labour won anything when it was neoliberal. The more it's socialist, the more seats it loses. The identity politics thing is um, is like a way of maybe getting some votes, but like socialism. There there are other reasons for this, but socialism is is dead in the voting booth, just dead across Europe. I'm. I'm going to be honest, I'm not so sure if that's necessarily true. I I agree with you in that the sense that socialism as like it was in the 20th century where people were out here arguing to like go straight to Soviet Union type ideas, that's all dead. Well, but Soviet Union. I feel like I feel like this I feel like the socialists today are a lot more subversive and are a lot more so I was talking with the socialist uh, mm -hmm. maybe like a year ago, and they were talking about the social like their 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 theories of how they're going to get to actual communism and actual socialism, and the way they do it is by co-opting the movements of like social de dem democracy and uh uh and to like you know the dem co-opting the democrats and co-opting the movements yeah of social I, democracy. I i understand the position they're trying to and, and to some degree they're doing it right now like in in political political philosophy there's this thing where that i don't want to get too much preamble because it's getting a bit late for me but um where you get the most voters to vote for you in an election if, if you're in the center say for example you imagine like a, a graph where there's uh, blue on the right and red on the left, and you, the, the person that you present in front of those has to be like in in the middle of the left and right. You're at, the closer you are to the center, the more people you get to vote for you, basically. And what the communists are trying to do is they're trying to move the center more left. They're trying to make the the Democrats in the U.S., for example, more extreme to the left, so the center moves. Yeah. And then, like, there'll be more left. But there's no way that people are gonna. I mean, that that could be a an an okay strategy, but it's still no way anywhere near uh, workers owning the means of production, economic planning. It's that's that's dead, dead as a dodo. And um, the the and the whole thing about welfare in and of itself, it basically keeps capitalism alive or let me let me put it another way if if you're debating a socialist and you really want to piss them off yeah and let's say they're saying uh 
this country is socialist let's say this country in europe is socialist this thing is socialist, and then just say it's not socialism i'm not that i'm not that i'm uh behind this next phrase but just tell them it's not socialism it, it's people the people's capitalism then they'll just freak out like completely lose their shit because literally these kind of welfare policies are if you look at it from their point of view they're keeping capitalism on life support indefinitely like you know they're, they're basically from their point of view from a socialist point of view they're acknowledging all these problems in society but because of these welfare distributive welfare policies these rolsian approaches to distributive justice or something like that um they're keeping capitalism alive. In def- there's no reason to replace it because we have all these government policies, uh, single-payer healthcare, if, like, uh, poverty, if you're poor, like, all these uh, welfare payments. So why would you need to... Why would you need the workers to own the means of production and start a revolution? No one is unhappy. Uh, I, I feel like we're, we're, we're talking a lot about, like, some bad news, you know? Like, things... We feel like things are going pretty wrong in the world but i i think i just remembered some some good news that i heard i was i remember it was on a it was on a server and somebody i think somebody mentioned that there was like an objectivist mayor that got elected oh did he uh in in uh i think it was like missouri or something oh um so that's good news yeah the revolution is here guys the revolution is here <laughs> missouri i don't know how to spell missouri we're in, we're in late st- we're in late stage cronyism. Well, look, I mean, <laughs> let, let's do it. Let's do it like this, right? Socialism is dead. Marxism is dead. Like, and to some degree, like if if I show up to to a debate or anyone any like uh, free market guy shows up to a debate with a socialist, it's like a show, really. It's like a circus show because neither you know socialism isn't going to happen. Free market, I I hope will happen, but you know, to to the audience, it's like a freak show. Um, but I, I think, I think if we try to recognize that, uh, the people who we should be having conversations against are, are social Democrats, are, um, uh, people who are for welfare and we position ourselves in a way we say, we have a better solution for this. And I, I've got some tactics that, that I won't explain right now because it's a bit long, but at the end of the day, socialism, Marxism, communism, it's dead. It's dead, dead, dead. It's no one's gonna vote for it. Yes, students like it. Yes, some um, university something likes it. It's not critical race theory. It's not uh, anti-racism. That's something else. Marxism is is dead. It's gone. There is no revolution. There won't be any. We need to recalib- recalibrate our targeting facility on something else because this is gone. It's dead. It is literally dead. If I think I don't know how effective this method would be, but I think the most effective, or at least the most, um, in my mind, convincing way you could ever achieve an objectivist, the objectivist ideal, would first be to start with changing the the foundations. Would be to like. Start changing people's views of reality, like their views of altruism. Yeah, I I agree. I a hundred percent agree. But but and and I when we should be doing that. 
I, well, I'm saying that the way you do that, I I, I kind of agree with uh, Diego here is, you know, by just living, like fully integrating the philosophy and living it. Yeah, and and especially if you are successful, like let's say you are a person, someone in your office, you you don't tell anyone about the objectivism, but you you just do your own thing and you're very good at it. And at some point, people are going to start asking you some things about yourself and then about objectivism, and they may internalize it and, and try it out. I think it would be interesting to see uh, like a fully objectivist uh, like entrepreneur. There are. I can give you right no. now. <laughs> Wait, really? Yeah. I don't know. I don't know. Well, you Maybe have Joan Allison, who was like a C- CEO of a bank... Uh, who's done a lot of work for the Cato Institute and as well as for Ayn Rand. There's a guy in Denmark that all his employees have to read Atlas Shrugged. It has like a special co- special something that he wrote in an introduction. There's a guy I'm, I'm watching now who is talking in the Adam Smith Society. I haven't seen his whole, but he's like a serious... Um, serial entrepreneur and on the board of many different things. Let me see if I can get his name in the UK. And seems like a very seems like a very nice guy as well. Luke Johnson, serial t- entrepreneur and, and acclaimed author. And you know, I mean um it we 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 do have some people here and there uh and maybe like people like uh Elon Musk hasn't heard of us, or Jeff Bezos hasn't heard of us, or or the guy that owns the Dallas Mavericks reads us once a year or something, but changes his mind, or flips or flip-flops when there's a pandemic or something. But um, it, it's irrelevant. It's like, if, it, if the philosophy helps you, that's what's important. Yeah, I think that. Yeah, I think that's uh, that's kind of the point of that, that's the point of the philosophy. It's to help the in, the individual person better live their life. And- oh, and the Wikipedia guy is like a hardcore objectivist. Which Wikipedia? The guy who created The guy, the, yeah. Um, Wales? One of the two founders. That's awesome. I, yeah, I remember I was talking, I was talking with the socialist. Jimmy uh, Wales, yeah. And, yeah, I was talking with the socialist. Uh, he's actually on the, the DDB show's uh, Discord server. Who? Uh, Lightning Pole? I don't. Well, I'm not gonna tell him. Tell you his name. I don't want to dox him. You know. Okay. Uh, but, but I was talking with him. Uh, and to him, objectivism was just a very like obscure philosophy that you know nobody's actually nothing's gonna happen with that. And Even if he couldn't, to him that was happening. And then I explained to him like the cultural impacts of objectivism, of uh, of people like or, or of of people like Rush. You know the band, <laughs> yeah. Uh, of of I and I guess I could use these entrepreneurs now. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's a lot more. It's a lot more uh, subtle, subtly in our lives every day than most people would expect. Well, like one of the bigger contributions is Ayn Rand's uh, ethics about capitalism. That's definitely a very. Uh, persuasive in the culture or around her time and certainly in the 80s um yeah the the fact that capitalism is ethical was pretty much her 
there was no no one else saying uh, capitalism is ethical and and developed a code of morality for it. And also, um, no, I'm pretty sure this is right, but the whole uh, self improvement movement. Yeah. Yeah, I think I'm familiar. I'm familiar. It started with ideas from her. Anyway, let's uh, let's wrap up because it's getting a bit late. Yeah, it was a good chat. Several topics there. Um, Plenty of worthwhile. Yeah. Did I answer your questions? Yeah. Yeah. For the most part. Uh, I still would like to see that that book on on. I guess you could say political philosophy. Mm. Um, I um. I um. May want to do like another talk about the uh, Rawlsian social contract and uh, like veil of ignorance and stuff like that, because mm. it's very popular with the uh, people I do debates with. But um, yeah, I've heard the social contract mentioned. Like, sorry, the social contract would be Rousseauian, but the 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 veil of ignorance would be uh, Rawls. Um. And yeah, and the profit prioritization, profit maximization, is still something I'm 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 digesting and integrating. But I, I I do feel that it's like a crucial element in our culture. That is, that is the, the package deal which people are not understanding how reality is. But yeah, that's uh, maybe we'll do that for next time. Mm-hmm. All right. All right. Well, cool, man. Guess I'll peace out. Thank you for the thank you for the chat, bro. Always always a good time. Thank you as well. Good night. Good night.